So we're going to look this morning at the first chapter of Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. I gave kind of a kind of an introduction last week, trying to get us up to speed and what's what's going on in, in 1923 when this is published, and and you know what, what kind of man Machen was and his his life a little bit. I'm not sure I did a very good job of that, but we, we talked about it last week and figure as we go, we can, we can hash out and kind of fill out some of Machen and some of his times as we just deal with what he writes uh, and see him that way. What are your, um, your kind of initial responses to the book? Have you opened it up and maybe read through this first chapter and maybe a little more? Any particular responses or comments? Just right off the bat? Like, I can't stand this book and why are we reading this or nothing like that? Okay, good. This is interesting Present scenario that we're in today. So. Sure. A lot of okay, good. Yeah, I think that's that's good. I think we'll find that too, and I hope we'll make much of that as we're talking about it. And say, okay, this is what's going on then, and trying to understand the, the mentality and and the sides and who's fighting over what and why, and then try to move into our own time. And say, okay, well, who's fighting over what and why now? And are the battle lines similar and that sort of thing? So I think we'll find many similarities, and that'll be encouraging. Other other thoughts? Yeah. I just. Uh, his his argument regarding um, government school, public school systems, I found interesting. Though they haven't fully gotten rid of options, they have set it up where people believe they don't have any other option. Right. And um, and definitely gain control of that system to help indoctrinate their line of thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Like his a good deal of this chapter is taken up with looking around education. Uh, and interestingly enough, education in the 1920s, uh, public education. I think we look back to other um, other American theologians even before him who look forward toward public education, saying this isn't a good thing. There are good things about it, right? There's there's value, but it's, it's like it's going to be it's going to fall into the hands of the ungodly, and it will be a, a breeding ground for that. And that's you know you see Mason dealing with that, and he he'll be interesting. A lot of people I read are like him a lot because he's a libertarian. Uh, he, you know, he, he doesn't see Christianity as kind of taking dominion so much and, and making just laws and making good things. It's like, well, maybe we do that, but he, he's a little more cautious than that, I guess, with, with uh, Christianity. It was interesting for me because so much of what I read, my background is post-millennial, take dominion, take the institutions, that kind of stuff. And he's like, hey, slow down. Uh, and I think, hey, slow down is a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing for us here. Was he in the all-millennial? He's an all-millennial. Yeah, that would be counter to yeah, at least, or, or if, if he were, or if someone would be, and but still have these reservations or cautions, those are good. I think sometimes we we just got stars in our eyes and charge for and don't even know what's going to happen five minutes from now kind of thing, right? Where he's more thoughtful than that. So more on that, I think, as we go. Um, so the first, oh, and by the way, the, the notes and the questions, I'm interested in your feedback because this is kind of how I've done books in the past with smaller groups kind of and just writing out questions or maybe points of outline that they kind of keep track as you're reading. But I don't want to give you questions where you just like fill in the blank. You just answer the question. Answering the question is fine. That's good. But thinking about the question and things associated with it and rolling around your head and talking about it, that's much better. Okay, that's, much, that's, that's what I want to do with these questions is to make you think, not just to say, here's the answer. Go find the answer in the book. Right? It's not that kind of deal. So if that's frustrating to you, you can let me know, you know, and say this this aspect or this dimension, these notes or questions is kind of weird. Let me know. I'm, I'm all ears. I want to hear it. Okay, so 
Don't be, don't be, don't be concerned. You'll hurt my feelings. You won't. It won't happen. I mean, I guess you can make it happen if you really want to. So, but if you're not trying to, you won't. Okay. So, what is the purpose of this little book? What's the purpose? What did what did what did Machen write this thing for? To enlighten people, right? Make them aware of the the, the battle lines within the church. Right? That there's this thing's going on, and uh, and to try to put as fine of a point on it to draw a clear, you know, draw the distinctions as clearly as possible, so that everyone can see what's going on. Uh, not just the scholars, or not just the academics, or not just the pastors, or even the you know the, the elders and the, the officers of the church, but everybody. That everybody should be able to look at this and say, oh. I can see what's going on here. That there's this very much non-Christian thing taking over Christian institutions, including churches. Right? That, 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 that people would be able to see that readily. Um, do you think he has so far achieved that? And so the, the first the first chapter here is, I think, really trying to draw the lines generally, and then he's going to go chapter by chapter, kind of doctrine by or first doctrine itself which is interesting, and then particular doctrines and shows, okay, here's, here's the modernism and here's classic Christianity and they're just different things all the way down. They're different things, though they use the same terminology, right? Though they, the modernists have changed the meaning of those words and still use them. Now, that itself is something that is very, very common, right? If you look at any kind of controversy, almost anywhere, but if you look at controversy in a church, Oftentimes you'll find people using words differently than they've been used so as to kind of fly it under the radar a little bit. To, to sound very orthodox, even though they're not meaning to be orthodox. Um, do you have an example? Yeah, I do. Bring it. <laughs> Accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's not a, in my opinion, and it may be controversial, but no accepting nothing. So I heard the gospel. I responded, God moved in my spirit, gave me a new spirit, so forth. It was unquestionable. I didn't have the free will. No, wait a minute, I'm not going to do it. Sure, so that, that's that probably... terminology to me is not... I've never seen that. Sure, so we, we have, in that sense, there's terminology that we have and kind of make up and put on things, say this is how we talk about it, and then you can come back and say, well, does the Scripture talk about it that way? That's a question. But that's, that's less, a, like, say, a, a direct controversy where... One party is using terminology in a, in a new and non-definitive sort of way where the other party is like, well, this is the way we've always used these terms, and why are you making up new definitions? So one, one way uh, in, in more kind of immediate reform things is both the Federal Vision, which I like a lot of those guys, and the New Perspective on Paul, again, I kind of like some of those guys too in certain ways, tend to talk about things like the word justification with a modified definition than the, what we'd say is the classical Protestant definition, for sure. Um, and that's, so there's a lot of that where the terminology uh, is, is used, but the meaning isn't the same. And it takes work to define words. It's something I was actually talking about Anselm and other kids about. It's like this, it takes labor to define. It really is. There's certain kinds of minds that do well at saying, what's this term mean? They can just generate a definition that's tight and clear. And it's clear in your mind and clear in their minds. Um, but... One thing, and I don't know if it's in this book or another one that I was reading, um, it might have been in this one from him, but he says that uh, some people prefer to conduct theological controversy in conditions of low visibility. Is that in this book? Yeah. The low visibility? Yeah, uh, from Patton, I think. Anyway, the conditions of low visibility, we don't want anyone seeing what we're doing. And if they do see, we just want them to see we're just normal Christians. Mormons do this, right? That's a, a kind of classic Mormon move, right? 
uh, and it's, it's classic all the way back to Joseph Smith to say, we want to present ourselves as just regular, normal, everyday Christians until you kind of get in. Then we start, like, moving you a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper until you're in hell. Uh, though they don't add that last part usually. Um, but that's the idea, right? And so they, they want to put themselves out there with normal Christian terminology and normal stuff, but they don't mean it that way. When they say Jesus is the Son of God, they don't mean classic, you know, what, what historic Christianity has meant by that. So that's an example of it. And the modernists are doing just that same sort of thing. So what is the word that you're referring to of that? You asked for a word. Was it not a, a change of word, a change of terminology? Right. What, is it, what are the Mormons using? What word? Oh, everyone. Almost everyone. Every, every doctrine that the Mormons have, has a, well, all, many of them have kind of classic Christian names or the terminology is normal Christian terminology, but they don't mean by it. So, for example, you know, Son of God, we talk about the, the you know, eternally generated by the Father, you know, they, that means it's something entirely different. But they can walk up to normal folks and sound very normally Christian, you know, not using words that sound weird to them that kind of put their defenses up, but words that sound normal and good and, and make them relax and just, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a certain level there where I, I get people maybe don't understand historic definitions and there's confusion there, but in the, in the, in the terms of leadership, um, I think it's mostly just deception. It's just lying. They're lying. Right? They're, 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 they're trying to deceive. They're trying to bring you in, so, just like Paul says in Galatians, so they can make much of you. Right? They want to have a following. They want to, so they, that's one of the tactics there is to just redo definitions. And, and that's something that's worth, I think, at the beginning of any controversy you're trying to understand or get into, look at the definitions. Look at uh, you know, how things are being defined and which parties are defining things. And are they the same or are they, you know, they cross-purposes there. Um, okay, so I think that as far as the purpose of the little book is to, is to try to make clear what a lot of churchmen are trying to make obscure. They don't, they don't want the clarity because they're moving in the, in the conditions of low visibility. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to be understood. Um, where Machen wants to be understood, and he wants them to be understood, and he wants Christians to be clear on what's going on. Okay, that's, that's the point of this little book, is they get clarity on the point of Christians, so that they would know what's going on. And, and, um, so that's, and I think the same thing, like, um, the, today, this, this very moment. If you talk about justice, for instance, in any given church, you may have a whole range of, of ideas, or people have a whole range of ideas about what we mean. Right? We mean the reparations for black Americans. That's justice, right? That may be top of the list for somebody, as far as justice goes. Where I think biblically looking at it, it's like, well, maybe that's not even on the list, um, but it's certainly not at the top of the list. But culturally, this is the thing, right? Do you understand what I mean? So even the term justice, which you might say, well, that's, that's a pretty biblical term, right? We sing about the justice of God, an attribute of him, but we should be clear on what that means. We're often not clear on what that means. Right? We have other notions, other definitions that have snuck in from other places that uh, become dominant. And we need to be careful with that. Think about what we mean by what we say, and think about what other people mean, you know, by what they say as well. Uh, and maybe another example, if you, you can think of one where this terminology, it doesn't have to be theological, this kind, of, this kind of thing happens in all kinds of controversies where definitions slide, and, and I think on purpose. I think the leaders want to obfuscate, they want to make it unclear, because they operate in that lack of clarity. That's how they gain the ground. Any, um, any other thoughts or, or on the purpose of the book and Kind of the bringing def- a clear definition to things. Uh, does that seem like a good idea to you? <laughs> it's hard work. Uh, it's, it's way easier to be obscure and just slide through. Um, but, and so Mason's doing the work. And, and doing the work, by the way, of 
kind of a, you know, he's a, he's a high-powered intellectual. He's a scholar. He's an academic. But he's not writing this for those folks. He's writing this for you and me. He's writing this for the people of, of the church, right? The, the Christians can know their Christianity and not be duped, not be uh, taken. Yeah. Where did Nathan write the book? In a hotel room? America, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. So he would, uh, as far as I know from Machen, um, he's, he's a bachelor. He didn't marry. Um, he was close with his mom, wrote back and forth to his mom like crazy. And when he'd write books, he would just go get a hotel room and check it out for a week or two or three or whatever he's doing and just stay there and write, which seems like a good idea to me. He didn't have kids uh, trying to, you know, trying to pull a thought together, but he, uh, he would retire to a hotel probably in Philadelphia or something like that or Princeton. So he worked at Princeton for a long time, and then uh, once he got booted out of there or left there, actually, he, uh, he found a Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So it's all in Pennsylvania. He's a Pennsylvania boy. Good question. Other, other questions? Oh, there it is. Okay, let's read that little quote here. Um, the type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meaning, or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. I thought that was terrific. Yeah, we, we just like to kind of sit around and feel good and, and hear words that make us feel good. As soon as life comes pounding at us, that will just disappear. There's nothing there, right? That's just, that's just frosting. Uh, the cake, although I prefer frosting when it comes down to it. But the cake itself, the, mat, the matter is something more substantial and deeper in our lives than that. The words reflect that depth. The words reflect the, you know, the realities of faith. The, words, or the pious words that ring aren't just to give us happy feelings. They're to reflect realities in our lives that when God sends things crashing into our lives, that we, we have root. We're rooted in Christ and uh, in, in, in the things of this, the, this world. Uh, won't shake us deeply that way because we're rooted. But if we don't have that, if we just rejoice in pious sounding phrases and feel good, that we'll get blown out. Right. Yeah. Sounds like the wise men building a house on the rocks. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the, 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 uh, similarly, the, the seed that takes no, you know, is on, on the rocks and springs up quickly and, uh, you know, the cares of life and so on, take it out and things like that. So that happens. And so we want uh, not just to come here and, kind of feel good because they're familiar things and familiar songs and, and the familiar intonation of the pastor's voice or whatever, things, things we latch on to. Okay, we, we're here to know Christ. We're here to know the triune God and to be rooted in him in Christ, and that's our life. That's what we are. And if we have that, then we won't get tossed to and fro. We won't get blown around. Um, anyway, take a little quote there. Uh, so, after that tasty quote, he moves on to talk about scientific knowledge and its development. Now, remember, he's writing in the 20s, 1920s, um, and that's a little, maybe a little harder for us to get back into, but I think there's probably every bit as much zeal around like empirical study and scientific study in the early 20th century as there is now, maybe more. Right? Um, so we wrote here, scientific knowledge is a development for good in what ways? It's almost hard to answer that. There's, there's so many ways. <laughs> it's valuable. It's like, well, how do, where do you start? You know, um, how about the, the small scar? I actually, the small scar some of you people have from laparoscopic surgery, rather than them taking a hatchet to get your you know, appendix out. Um, I got the hatchet job. I don't know why. Um, yeah. Um, so I don't know when when it departed, but it seems like that uh, the term scientific 
the, pro the actual method of hypotheses and experimentation and so forth, mm -hmm. the scientific method so-called, today seems like a lot of, at least on the surface, had been tossed out the window, whereas mm -hmm. maybe in his day there was, you know, there were, there were those scientists that held to this, whether it was religious controversy or the Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever. It was anything. That, that, that method seems like earlier was maybe... Possibly. I wasn't around then, but yeah. it was, oh. Less adulterated. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, not adulterated, where today it's like, the method is, it's anything goes, yeah. we don't care. So I, I, I kind of think that, well, the scientific method, uh, the, the example, or the, you know, the Baconian method, right, of, uh, of science is we experiment on things and testable, and we can retest them and have the same effects and the same conditions, and all that kind of stuff. Um, is, is a way of gaining knowledge, and it's good. But you put it in the hands of sinners, and they start doing you know, wacky stuff with it, including using it to try to like cover their, their own selves and their own mistakes, or forge ahead the way they want, or however, right? Sinners do that. We do it with the Bible. Ministers do it with the Bible, too. So, right, so there's this notion of science that is really a good thing, and it's not... There's the kind of fine-tuned scientific method, but that, this kind of observational knowledge goes... Of course, all the way back. It's not like there wasn't a scientific age in the sense that men looked at the world and tried to figure it out and did experiments on it. But there is a fine-tuning of that and a sharpening of it in the modern world, especially, and, uh, and that that's paid enormous dividends. That's given us a lot of, which is to say, God's given us many gifts through men of science who've studied and worked hard to develop these things. That come. So, you know, we can think, and I think the most obvious, he mentions, I think, physics and chemistry or something. He has a couple he throws out there. Okay, um, and maybe so. And you, you think in our time, certainly technology and other things play into all that. Well, there's, there's a great deal of, of uh, moving ahead, right? A great deal of progressing. And then there's this sense in humanity like we, we are progressing. Humanity is progressing. We're moving right along. Uh, even to the point, you know, after the 19th century, we've, we've moved past war. We, we, we're done with war. We figured out how to, like, you know, negotiate and talk. And then there's, like, World War I. It's like, oh, I guess we're not. In fact, that's the most terrible thing we've ever seen. <laughs> and we thought we were done with war. It turns out we weren't even close, um, and so on. So we, we have a way of duping ourselves, I think, as, as just individual people, but I think as humanity, uh, groups of humanity, into seeking progress and seeing certain signs of progress, but taking that and making it more than it really is, or indicate more than it really is supposed to, to indicate. Um, yes. In what ways is this modern knowledge also destructive? So we have this scientific knowledge, the empirical knowledge, that is say, based on, on observation and so on. Um, that's given us many good things. God's given us many gifts through that. In what ways is it also destructive? COVID vaccine. <laughs> Bring it right up to the present. <laughs> Awe-inspiring ways to kill people. Okay, yeah, sure. That's, uh, you know, you put the power in men's hands and they use it to tear each other to pieces. Right? Uh, that's, that's not new there. Right? Uh, men are it's wicked. What's that? Sure, great example. Yeah. Um, we're going to split the atom. Like, hey, this is great. We can do all kinds of stuff, including kill each other far more efficiently. Yeah. Um, okay, that's interesting. So how's the hierarchy? Where, how does that come in, do you think? Or how do you see it? use it 
for purposes that are not glorifying God, but glorifying man, okay. will be destructive. Okay, for sure. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, even in the very, you know, uh, up until the end of World War II, um, we didn't take pills for everything. Right? The pharmaceutical industry, which is enormous and rooted in, in a lot of scientific work, a lot of scientific work, dominates our lives. Totally dominates our physical lives and to the point where we don't even know. It's, it's only a couple generations old. Right? Uh, so there's, there's lots of stuff like that that kind of creep in. And that, that's not all bad either. Right? There, I think there are plenty of blessings that have come through Big Pharma. Uh, but there are also you know, many curses that have come through Big Pharma as well. Um, so that's it's, there's this kind of like double-edged sword, right? It cuts both ways all the time with humans, all the time, because we're made in the image of God and we're fallen. That's why it goes that way all the time, right? And so even among the godless, they're still made in the image of God. They still have that image of God in their mind and their work, and, and they can develop and do great things. But they can also take them and make them wicked, which is what we do by nature. How about for Christianity in particular? Yeah. So it, it's made us believe we don't need God, right? We we know totally. we know we know everything we need to know, and we can and what we don't know we can learn through the scientific method yeah. or whatever, and we don't need God to explain. Well, it. and it kind of ties into this like modern hubris of like those rubes back, those mouth breathers back then. Yeah, okay, that's what they thought. You know, God's a, you know bowling in heaven. That's why we have thunder. That kind of, or whatever, you know, stupid stuff like that. But now we know how it works. And so we don't, with the whole God hypothesis, is we don't need it anymore. The, the, the ancients used that because they didn't understand things, and they just kicked it upstairs. But we don't have to kick it upstairs. In fact, there probably is no upstairs. Um, we can figure it out ourselves, and if we don't know it now, we have all the means at our disposal to figure it out. There's the enlightenment thought right there. That's for sure. We don't need the ancients. We have everything we need. And if we don't have it right now, we're going to get it. Right, so the, and, uh, anyway, that, that ties in very much to, to the church. Yeah, David. It's not an accident. It's not accidental that everybody now is saying the people that hate God, they're always saying all the signs. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah, and it's, of course, the science, like Bill was talking about, science in the hands of whom? Science in the hands of CNN that's telling you, right, or whatever. I mean, yeah, it, it gets all wild and crazy, but you're right. Yeah. So in, in, the, in the kind of atheistic, you know, mindset of modern times, science, and maybe all the way back, uh, that is our epistemological root. This is how we get to know things. This other revelation and stuff like that, that's not knowledge. That's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. But we can know something here if we use science. And then it becomes bastardized and, you know, after that, beyond it, right? But I call into question the very beginning of it, that we can really know something through science without recognizing that God's the God who made this place, and he's the one who made it, so it's consistent and we can test things. Right? It, all, it all rests in the character and creative, you know, work of God. And the atheist wants to remove it from that and keep this thing going. Right, the scientific method. Um, that is also one of the terms whose definitions then tweaked. Oh, totally. Right. Sure. Yeah, and especially when it's kind of a political deal, it's just, you know, it, the, the definition spirals out of control. Let's keep moving here because we're not going to get through very far. I was hoping to get through this. Um, okay, so this, this modern science is destructive, particularly Christianity in certain ways. He gets into that. Um, and... Just moving on a little more. Well, the, the number, the page seven question. What does Machen mean by unchristian there? Anyone, that's a kind of easy one to give a direct answer to. 
maybe. I mean, at least, at least simply an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Christian doctrine or doesn't associate with Christianity or call himself a Christian or isn't baptized. But does he use that in a pejorative way? Does he use it in a negative way? No. Uh, explicitly not. Expressly not, right? It's like, well, here's Guter or whoever he like, references and say, yeah, these guys don't trust God, they don't believe in God, but they're, they're amazing people. They've managed to do some amazing things by the mercies of God. But so, you know, so that's, that's something for us as Christians. There's plenty to be gained from the non-Christian world. Plenty to be gained. Um, and I think Machen's a guy that can sit there and, and manage to sort it out, right, and help us sort out what's, what we can receive from the pagans and bring into our Christian thought and world and what we need to reject. And it's not all rejection. It's not all receiving. It takes some discernment as we go through. Uh, and that's, that's important for us, I think, just in, in an education with our kids. You know, do you have them read Homer? Yeah. Do your kids read Virgil? Um, well, they should. Uh, and you should be able to lead them through to teach them how to read Homer and Virgil because they're important, even though they're not Christian right, and so on. And that's, I think, an important thing. Yeah. Uh, the classical education you're referring to uh, is really – So that just your first comment there that part of what we're doing, with, especially with the Christian classical model, is, is the antidote. This kind of thin scientific um, education you're getting isn't really scientific, and it's very thin. But if we can pull together with the ancients and through a, a Christian worldview to understand what God's doing and take advantage of all these things, that's a fulsome education. That's what we're after. Uh, absolutely right. Okie dokie. Let's go ahead. Oh, like, like being mean or something? Well, you kind of use that term of program, like, okay, yeah. like, you know, kind of, and I looked at it, it's just, um, I sort of a distinction between that and being I don't think, I, I think that he, I think what he means is these people aren't Christian, but I don't mean that in the sense of like they're all junk or they have nothing to offer, like in just a negative or a pejorative sort of way, but just recognizing they're not coming from a Christian mindset, but they still have things to offer. There's still value there. That's, that's kind of how I took him to mean that, which, which was along the lines of, yeah, we need to be open as Christians to what the wisdom of the world has offered, not because we're enamored of the wisdom of the world, but because there is some wisdom there, and all truth is God's truth, no matter who sees it or articulates it. Right? Just because the ungodly articulate truth doesn't mean it's untrue because they're ungodly. Right? And I think too, too often we, we think that way. We operate that way. Um, so there's that one. The, uh, he has a, um, continuing with the thing just before, the, this kind of modern mindset and approach. Uh, he talks about it being a narrowing or a, um, uh, that's right, I can't think of the right word, um, Anyway, a, a narrowing, kind of constrictive sort of view. Um, I'll read the page 8 and 9. Machen uses modernity and its scientific investigation of having, uh, accuses them of having narrow, narrowing effect upon humanity, specifically in the spiritual realm. In what areas does he see this decline? What's the spiritual decline of man under modernity, in this kind of modern, scientific, investigative sort of mindset? Well, once again, the Education teaches things and that, the, that the state once taught. And 
back to the classical education that teaches more about the, uh, the human uh, conditions of the human, uh, the elements of the human condition. And so being given a certain thing, a set of things to believe, this is what you need and we'll take care of the rest is more of like that, you know. Or the rest isn't worth taking care of. Yeah. Maybe another way of thinking of it too, right? Um, so like in, uh, what, what gets cut? So in, in school funding, what, what are the things on the shopping block? And it's kind of moving into our time or in the, you know, in the last 30 years or something. But art, sure, art and music, right. the very the, the very things that kind of like are the what seem to be the, the cherry on top of our humanity, right? Uh, the expressions of art and uh, the beauty um, is what's beauty? We're talking about functions, baby. We're talking about mathematics. Now you can you can take functions in mathematics and say it's beautiful and see that in. I get it. Uh, Richard Dawkins, I heard in debating. I can't remember who, but anyway, some, some Christian that was in Worth of Salt, uh, saying how beautiful the doctrine of evolution is, right? how, how beautiful the, whatever, the intricacies and the shape of it, I think, okay, well, I guess, you know, how about the beauty of beer? That's way more beautiful to me than evolution, or the beauty of a woman, or the beauty, I mean, just whatever, it's, it's, it's such a, a narrow, narrow vision, you know, vision of beauty it doesn't account for what we all experience in life. It's like, it's anemic. Um, and I think that's what he's getting at. There's a soul poisoning anemia that goes on with this modern mindset that robs us of things that are very important to being human, let alone being Christian, just simply to being human. Um, that's, anyway, that's, I think that's worth thinking about, the way our education shapes us and what it offers and what, it wants, what we can explore in it, how we can grow, how our children can grow uh, and, and flourish in you know, tr- truth, beauty, and goodness. Uh, in the uh, in their education, so other other thoughts on that one? The kind of narrowing of uh, a modern mindset, a modern scientific mindset. But he does, and, you know, back on what you're saying, it's not just a narrowing of the scientific mindset. But he he does spend a little time saying, you know, what happened to the great art? That there is no totally. good art being produced anymore. And it, sometimes it seems that way with our own time, anyway. You know, we all, we look back a generation or two and say, oh yeah, you know, that's when giants roamed the earth. Uh, now we're a bunch of, you know, nothing. But, that, and sometimes that's true, you know, but oftentimes it's a matter of perspective. And I wonder, I mean, thinking of the, you know, he's just on the edge of the jazz age. Right? Well, how, what, what's so talking about an explosion of creativity and interest there? That's coming out too, right? Probably not because of scientific inquiry, though, uh, in Harlem. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so, uh, cool. Any other thoughts on the narrowing? Um, so we've, we've kind of the whole time been, been angling toward education, which is, like I said, the kind of place he ends up going in this chapter, right? That's the, a pretty easy place to spot what the priorities of this kind of modern scientific mindset as it comes to education, what those, what, what those parameters are and how they're uh, constrictive on the human spirit and human artistic work and, and all, that, all that sort of stuff. Um, but more than that, um, this kind of maybe where we started, that if the educators are godless and the system education is expressly godless, then it's just going to be a nursery for godlessness. Right. Um, and I said it last week that, that you know, that, and there's no way around this. There's no way around it. That the public, the government institutions say whether God exists or not, it does not matter for your child gaining knowledge or you getting knowledge. God's irrelevant at best in the classroom. And I think as Christians, we have to say, that's blasphemous. God's absolutely relevant at every point. 
for our gaining of knowledge, our understanding of the world and who we are. Uh, if we leave God out of, the, out of the thinking that we're doing and the teaching that we're doing, we're going to train up a bunch of godless kids. Right? Don't worry, they'll get it in Sunday school. That one hour a week they go and get, you know, whatever, and put felt board stuff on it. Um, they'll, they'll, that'll be the antidote for many, many, many hours during the week of godless education. And I don't think that works very well. I think God's merciful, and he, he gives us gifts in that and doesn't give us what we deserve often. But if we're making that bed, we're going to have to lie down on it. We're going to have to deal with what comes out of it, which is to say a, a nursery of ungodliness, which I, I mean, in, in our own time here, just in the last handful of years, right, to watch this, uh, the, what seems to me a fairly small group of radicals just totally take and run with education and push it how they want and everyone else stand back going, I don't know, I can't say anything because I speak up, I'm a racist. If I speak up, I'm a sexist. If I speak up, I'm blackball and canceled. Right? Um, so that's, that's a struggle right now in our schools, but that's the fruit of it. Where are the breaks? Where are the breaks from the beginning on godless education and where it goes? There aren't. If you have, if as a Christian education, you say, well, here are the breaks. Here are the parameters of what we're going to do. God's word. He's going to instruct us on what is true and right, beautiful and good. And from there, we'll, we'll reach out and assimilate, right? That's a different kind of education than excluding God. And then just let's see what happens down the road. Right? So uh, public education in that sense is a big problem. Do you have something to say? Yeah, just, uh, you know, unfortunately, children, I don't remember that far back, aren't apt to uh, question a teacher that says, make such a statement to say to say that and, and to, well, wait a minute, can you give me some, uh, about the truth of that statement that God oh, doesn't matter? You not know? even in college. Well, I mean, kids, well, okay, yeah, even later on, but they're not able to, or don't want to ask that question or afraid to. Yeah, yeah. I was one of the handful in college that would fire questions at the just like that. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and, and most of the time, they backed off. They say, oh, you know, they, you know, and these are these particular professors are good. They're faithful, you know, good, solid professors, and they, you know, they be able to deal with that. But sometimes these people are just pontificating. They don't really have much knowledge. Man, you poke a hole in that, and they're mad, you know, um, that kind of thing. So uh, let's let's get to the last question, which is the most important one here, which is, what is Machen's hope? What's, what's what does he have? So this is kind of a you know parade of like problems. Uh, and whole books of parade of problems, <laughs> it turns out. So what's the hope? Where is where is he uh, where does he find that? It's in the last paragraph <laughs> of the chapter. <laughs> anyway, his, his, don't worry about reading it now. Read it later. But yeah, his hope is in Christ and in faithful Christianity, right? That, that Christians would be faithful to their Lord, faithful to the Scripture, uh, and that Christianity has something to offer to the world. That is, we talk about antidote. That's an antidote to these problems. Right? Faithful Christianity is the answer, which is to say, Christ exalting, uh, Christ proclaiming, worship and thinking and, and, and work of Christians is the hope of the world. Which is to say, Christianity and the church is the hope of the world. Almost sounds postmillennial, though it doesn't have to be, uh, because the world can still go to hell in a handbasket, even though Christ is its hope. Uh, if we don't latch on to it. The question is, will the church latch on to their Christ and the scriptures that God's given the church and, and be the church, even though it might be unpopular or it might open you up to criticisms of being this or that or whatever. You just take them and keep rolling. So Anyway, there is, there is hope here. I think it's a negative book. We're, it's a negative critical book. Maybe that appeals to a lot of our Presbyterian you know, hearts. Uh, I'm not sure. But, um, but the hopefulness is truly the important part. That Christ is uh, greater than the world, and he has plans for his church. 
And so we need to step up and be faithful and, and recognize those plans and, and serve the Lord. Um, that will be our final comment as we're over time, and Clinton's going to go crazy back there. So let's, uh, let's pray.